Thank you, ladies. Good morning, everybody. For those of you visiting, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. It's good to be with you. I think of that line we just sang, all who live in love are thine. Living in love, that's kind of where we're going this morning, to exist in the context of God's perfect love. Love sometimes feels fluffy to guys like me, kind of like a sappy add-on to the otherwise meat of Christianity, which is doing what's right. And yet love perhaps isn't so sappy. I want to start this morning with an exercise with you. I want you to kind of get into a certain headspace with me for a moment, and this is what I want you to imagine. Imagine God thinking about you. Imagine God thinking about maybe all of the people in the world, and he's kind of going down the list, alphabetically, I'm sure, and, and he comes to your name, he comes to your life. What does God feel when he thinks about you? What does God think about you? What are the first things that come to mind when God has you on his mind? I ask people this question once in a while, and I know that I ask myself this question often. Where am I at with God? What does he think about me? Not everybody and not all of the time, but almost all of the time that that question comes up, I think we figure that God is just pretty, pretty upset with us. We think that he's disappointed with us. We think that he is even, I think many people think, he's, he's actually pretty angry with me. At the best, he's disappointed with me. I, and we say this in, in language like, I know, I know, I should be praying more, but I don't. <sighs> I should be reading my Bible more, but I, but I don't. I shouldn't be involved with that pornography, but I am. I shouldn't be this way. I should have been more patient. We think of ourselves in terms of God and we say, oh, I know, I'm sorry, God, I know you're upset. I know, know you're disappointed. But what keeps us going is the, is the truth that Jesus sacrificed for those sins so God will tolerate me and he will be patient with me until I can come to be with him in heaven. He'll be cordial with me for the time being. For all of my growing up years, I figured that he was just tolerating me until I could get to heaven where he could make me truly lovable. That right now, my job is to be his worker so that he can use me. That's my best shot right now, to be one of, one of the people that he uses for good things. And so I, I, I get into that mindset. Later, later on in heaven will be a place where he can have a lot more love toward me because he'll take away that, that sin that's in me that makes it impossible for him to love me fully now. If you feel, if you feel that God is bummed out with us or that he's angry with us, then you're convinced that it is your sin that he first notices when he looks at you. It's the first thing that catches his attention is your specific sin and how much of it you've got. This is the story, I think, 
that many of us have believed. It's very common, and I think it's very messed up. It's a way of viewing God and your life that's deeply distorted, and the consequences from this kind of thinking affect your entire life. You say, well, why? How does it affect my whole life? I think you can answer that question on your own from personal experience. Think of somebody that you know for a fact is upset with you. They're, they're, they're disappointed in you, and they're even angry with you. What do you do with that person? You tend to avoid them, or you get angry back at them. Why are you mad at me? Good grief. What did I do? I think we think that sometimes. I didn't ask for this life. I didn't ask to be put into this chaotic world, and now you're mad at me? You see? We either try to avoid them, or we get angry back at them, or we try to make things right with them, don't we? We say, okay, I actually do love you. I'm super bummed that I've wronged you. How can I make this right? How can I do better? Consider that statement where you, where you look at somebody and say, dang, <laughs> that dude needs to get right with Jesus, okay? When do we say that? We say that when we see somebody who's failing or sinning or something, yeah? And when we do, notice the implication. The implication is that there's a relational break between that guy or that woman and Jesus, and God certainly isn't the one who broke the relationship apart. It's not God's responsibility to fix it. It's that person's responsibility. Hence, they need to get right with Jesus. That's how we just, that's how we think. Our sin is the first thing that catches God's attention. Our sin is what defines our relationship to God, whether or not he will love us or not. But then you and I both hear that faint biblical echo which we've also heard and read many times, where we're reminded almost of a truth that is unbearable and unfathomable and even stupid. We hear God tell us through the apostolic teaching, he loved us while we were yet sinners. He loved us while we were yet sinners. Or maybe we, we hear an echo, but we insert the wrong idea. We might think something like, we love him because after we prayed to receive him and after we made things right with him through behaving well and serving in church and giving, then he loved us. No, that's not the echo of the New Testament. That's not the wording. We love him because he first loved us. He loved us while we were yet sinners. Think about how you think of others. Do we love them through the eyes of God, through the heartbeat of God? Or do we love people when they're not sinful? We don't love them first, we love them after. These are kinds of things that come to mind based on your core beliefs about your relationship with God. When you think it's your sin that God first sees, you're compelled by the power of your sin, which is not very powerful, but it's the thing that's driving you. And then we don't have the love of Jesus compelling us. We have a gospel of sin management instead of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what if it was different? 
What if you could live in a totally different way? You imagine God thinking about you. You wonder how he feels when you come to mind and you know. You don't just assume you know in the deepest place of your being that he totally, completely loves you as you are right now before he, you love him back. While you are yet sinful, he loves you. If that is the grounding truth, you know that to be true, how does that change your life? You know that he says yes to you. You know that he is Emmanuel, God with you, not apart from you, watching. He's with you in life, that he's for you. He's in your corner. That like a good father, he is actively working to raise you up into maturity and life. What happens when that's the grounding? That's the thing you think when you say, how does God look at me? God looks at me as his beloved. Boom, that's where he's at. It's amazing how your life can change on those core beliefs that you hold. And that is where our next passage is going to take us this morning. This next scene is a serious game changer in the, in the gospel of Mark. This next scene shows the heartbeat of Christianity according to Jesus. He gives it to us. So turn with me to Mark chapter 12. We're going to pick it up in verse 28. And we're going to read a short story about the heartbeat of true life. This taking place in the same place that the last scene from last week took place. We're at the temple. Mark has revealed several scenes in a row now of Jesus' battle with these very intelligent, scholarly, biblical dudes. And they're waging this kind of conversational, debating war with him. And it's gotten more and more and more intense, okay? So here, what you'd expect to happen might not actually happen. It won't. This is going to be a cool twist. The whole story will twist here in the way that Jesus uh, is responded to. So verse 28, here we go. One of the teachers, Mark uses the word grammatus there, a scribe. So not a Pharisee or a Sadducee, but one of those types of guys. He's a scribe. One of the teachers of the law came, and he heard them debating, that's Jesus and the Sadducees, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He liked Jesus' response. He asked Jesus, of all the commandments, which one is the most important? Pause for a second there. This would be a very, very common question in Jesus' day. These guys had counted up 613 individual commands in the first five books of the Bible, okay? Now, if you've got 613 rules to live by, you are necessarily trying to categorize them and say, okay, which one of these are more important? How do we make sense of all these different commands? Notice what they were not asking. He was not asking which of these do I have to follow and which ones of them are, are less important and that I don't really need to follow them? That is, <laughs> there is no possible way that that's in the mindset of the Jewish, the Jewish mind and in, in where we're at. He's saying, which of these is, is a governing principle, if you will, or a summarizing principle that sort of captures the essence of the whole law? Not which ones should I follow and which ones don't I have to, but which ones get to the gist of it, what it's all about, okay? So with that in mind, we go to verse 29. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Oh, the scribe says, wow, well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and that there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and all your understanding and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that this man had answered wisely, he said to him, You, my friend, are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. There's the twist, okay? The guy responds rightly. And what we've seen so far has just been, but what about this? But what about that? They battle, they go back and forth. This is what our most learned and developed theologians and scholars would call a mic drop. They just, he drops the mic. He says, this is the deal. And then it's just, hmm. And nobody says a word. Love God, love others. And people just sit there and say, huh. And there's nobody else that challenges him. Boom. From then on, nobody asked him any more questions. So this plot has thickened. The controversies surrounding Jesus have intensified, and this ends that battle. We won't see that again in Mark the same way. People almost, I think, are floored by that reality. Even if you want to argue, how do you? Jesus is essentially saying to him, every single instruction that you have received from God has been given for the purpose of transforming you into somebody who is a loving being, one who loves God without compromise, and one who loves his or her neighbor. That is what all of these laws and rules intend to do, to craft you and hone you and form you into a loving being. Now, he said something interesting to the scribe, too. He said, he said, you're not far from the kingdom. I would kind of want to hear a little bit more, yeah, you're in, baby. Good answer. You know, like, he gets it as though the number one most important thing is understanding with your brain. But he says, you're not far from the kingdom. He does not call him a disciple, which he has called his disciples' disciples. What's the difference? Those disciples are actually following after Jesus. They're living into his life. And so this scribe is right on, the, right on the doorstep, but he says, you're not far from the kingdom. He doesn't call him a disciple. Following Jesus is the mark of a disciple. Some of us need to ask ourselves, do I love Jesus, the person, the God? Do I love Jesus in himself, or, or do, I, do I want the experience of loving Jesus. I put that on your bulletin on the front cover. There's a deep thought there to meditate on this week. You have to think about that. Take that to God in prayer. Do I truly love Jesus or do I really just want the experience of loving Jesus? 
I would suggest that if you believe that God is primarily looking at your sin or that he's disappointed or bummed out with you or even angry, you probably like the experience of loving Jesus more than really loving him. How so? Well, it's almost fall time here. We might think of professional football, which everybody would immediately think of the Green Bay Packers. You think of professional football. The experience of watching a Packers game is awesome, right? I'm super inspired by Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback. He's, there's great coaching. There's cool people. They're really doing a good job. They're winning almost all of the games they ever play, I think. That's how it goes. They're doing awesome, right? Now, if I'm sitting there and I say, boy, I really love this team, you say, I want to be a part of it. And you, and you kind of go down onto the field, and what happens? You don't belong here. Get off the field. You're a nobody. You don't have what it takes. You're not enough. And you say, okay, okay, okay. That's cool. I'll just watch. And as a good, apathetic American, we just kind of complacently say, yeah, I can't ever be transformed into an NFL player, but at least I can sit and attend and love experiencing what other people are doing. I sit back because I think God is bummed out and angry with me and I'm not enough for his team. So I just resort to say, yeah, I'll come and pay attention and I'll watch what others are doing. Jesus' church, however, is not a professional team. And the requirement is not about moral performance or thought or thinking performance. The requirement is a willingness to be transformed by a God who loves you and loves others. The willingness to be one who loves God. That's it. It's saying yes to a Jesus who first says yes to you and then bending your will to his will. Truly believing into him and believing that he alone can transform you as you live with him. That is so different than thinking I need to make things right with him or do enough to be good enough to be on the team. So now I'll just watch. Transformation is at the core. Now, some of you might know as you read this creed that Jesus has given to the man, you might recognize in that the Shema. The Shema is the Jewish prayer that to this day a pious Jew recites Right as the sun crests the horizon and the first light breaks, you recite it at dawn, and right as the sun drops below the horizon and evening sets in. The idea is we say this prayer over and over every single day of our life so that it will help to form us into a kind of person. There's only one exception that a Jew has for not saying the Shema twice a day. Often they say it three times. And that's if you're a male, on the day your father dies. That's the one day you don't say it. Why am I telling you this? Because it was so central to them. And they understood, because of what God had taught them, that we are a people who are quite prone to wander and forget. I mean, you learn a really great lesson and you, and you forget it in about 10 seconds, you know. And so you have to keep it at the fore. So this was an instruction from God. Say this prayer. Let it be the central grounding reality that informs all that you do. 
So Jesus' reply to the greatest commandment of these, which one is the greatest? He starts with the Shema. But then he also alters the Shema, as Jesus likes to do. He loves to, to turn stuff upside down or twist it. I think what you see a lot of what he's doing is expanding what God has already revealed. So he's altering this key prayer into something new, and I would call that the Jesus Creed. This is the creed, the founding core principle that he calls us to live by. So notice how he starts in the exact same way as the Shema, and I'll read that in a second. In, in Hebrew, the word Shema means hear. Hear God. Hear, O Israel. That first verb, even before love God, is Pay attention to God. Listen to Him. Hear Him. Hear, O Israel. And hear what? Hear the Lord your God. Am I actually paying attention to God? Or am I paying attention to other instructions? To other promises? To other values and other voices? You drive from here to downtown and just look outside of your car window on the peripheral left and right and you'll be exposed to about 35 promises. They're in big, huge, rectangular shapes with words and really cool pictures. And they promise you that if you have this, your life is going to be good. You'll see them on your phone while you're checking your email right now. Promises from the world. Do you believe those promises, or do you believe God's promises? Are you hearing God or are you hearing Ford Motor Company and the government and the news? What are you listening to? Listen to him. Hear, O oh people of God, pay attention to him. Shema him. Listen to what he says about his love for you. Listen to what he says about his love for your neighbors and the nations of this world. And believe him. <laughs> you can trust him. He's telling you good things. He is real. And he's not silent. So hear, O people of God. But then he changes it after that significantly. So here, let's read the first, the original Shema. I'm going to read the shortened version. They would also add in some other texts. But this was the core piece. Right now, today in Israel, every Jewish person is, has woken up and, and they recite this Shema. Hear, O Israel. This is out of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. So far, we're verbatim. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you get up and walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols around your hands. Bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of the houses and your gates. He's literally telling them how to form the world they live in so that they will be formed by his truth. You go to Jerusalem right now in their hotel room, in the entrance to McDonald's, I don't care where, the gas station, bathroom, there's little scrolls, little scroll ornaments on the door frame at, at about a 45 degree angle, not quite. Everywhere you go, and they modernize them, and sometimes it's just a little block of metal at an angle. You're like, why is there a block of metal on the store? Like, Say the Shema. We always remember, everywhere we go, we remember that we are supposed to love God and follow Torah. Okay. 
Now that's the original, grounding, spiritually transforming prayer of the Jew. So Jesus is clearly referring to that, but how did he twist it? To the command that you should love God, he adds now, love your neighbor. This is new. Loving God also is understood as following Jesus rather than following Torah. Notice that the scribes asks, what is the one single greatest command? And Jesus says, well, the greatest command are these two commands. Yeah? You caught that, didn't you? It's like, you know how it is when somebody says, just give me the one single answer. And you're like, well, but there's two answers, you know. Jesus ties the one command together and he says, here's one command for you. It's actually two parts. Love God and love your neighbor. You noticed in the Deuteronomy passage, the next instruction after loving God is to follow Torah. Why do you suppose he doesn't mention Torah? Jesus doesn't. Well, through all of Mark's gospel so far, Jesus has presented himself as the fulfillment of Torah. So if you were the kind of person who loved God and you wanted to express that love through obedience to Torah, Jesus says, now I'm on the scene and I am embodying all of Torah. So to do that same exact thing, you now follow me. You follow after me. So love God and follow Torah turns into love God and love others and follow Jesus. And the man's positive response is pretty encouraging, especially in a story where literally everybody who's like the scribe, has <laughs> they're, they're not cast in a real happy light by Mark. They're, they're pretty vicious guys, right? But Mark gives us this guy who's kind of seeking and he's interested, and he seems to understand. The scribe understands that when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, he means have an uncompromised love for God, undivided, all-encompassing. Perhaps most importantly, he understands that the point of God's instructions are not the way we sometimes think of them. He understands them in a way where he's if, if he were able to be here in our modern day, he would say something like, you can attend church, you can give faithfully, you can train your kids well, you can stand rightly for the truth, you can repent and seek forgiveness from God. These are our instructions that we have in the church, right? You can repent and seek forgiveness, you can love all of Jesus' teaching, you can obey all of his instructions to a T, you can do all of that stuff. And yet, if in spite of all of that, you still think of yourself before other people, remaining disjointed from your fellow men and women in this world and especially in Jesus' church, bent on your own pursuit for life, liberty, and happiness for me, then you're blind and lost. That's what the scribe says when you can do all the burnt offerings and all the sacrifices but if, you're, if they are not forming you into this, you're missing the most crucial point. The heartbeat has flatlined. The law, the Torah, Jesus is saying, was always about formation, forming us into loving others, free from hate, from bitterness, from malice, from deceit. And yet many miss this by making the mistake that many of us today still are prone to make. 
In many cases, we have developed a love for Torah instead of a Torah of love. We've been taught to love the Bible, love the Bible, and have forgotten that this is a Bible of love. Jesus is not trying to persuade you to love your Bible, period. That's the end. He's helping us to see that the Bible is a Bible of love, and he is the embodiment of that love. The Bible is given to you to form you into a human being that loves God and loves others and lives after Jesus. If you love the Bible but aren't being formed into that kind of human being, well, this morning the Holy Spirit of God is trying to wake us up, I would say, to wake us up to this reality so that we can hear God more clearly. When the scribe says in verse 33, this love is more important than all of the burnt sacrifice, all the burnt offerings and sacrifices, he is believing Jesus' main point. All of what God instructs is purposefully intended to shape me into one who loves him and loves others. So if that's not happening, then everything that I'm doing for Jesus Everything that I'm working on to make things right between me and him is utterly pointless, and I'm out on my own, and I'm adrift. And I think many of us feel that way. We feel like our disconnection from the church is always somebody else's doing. We feel tenuous about belonging to a church because we're, we're nervous that God is mad at us or perpetually bummed. So we kind of hang and we watch, and we're looking forward to heaven, but man, right now, there's not much I can do. Well, the scribe gets that what Jesus has said is true, and he, being somebody who was surely formed by the Shema himself, he knows that Jesus' words carry the ring of truth when he says what he does, and he accepts it. You are right, the scribe says, in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. You're right in saying that to love him with all your heart and understanding and strength Sometimes with this passage, we can try to break it down a little bit more than I think Mark intends for us to do. So you might say, well, how does, how does, there's a difference, isn't it? Jesus says you've got to love him with four parts of your being, and the Jewish guy, and the, and the scribe says, Jesus is a Jewish guy too, sorry. The scribe says there's three things you have to love him with, right? And, and guys like me are like, ooh, there's a clue there, but I don't think there actually is too much of a clue. I think he's just essentially saying, with all of who you are, your mind, your strength, your soul, your heart. Uh, for the Jewish mindset, the seat of knowledge, what's the seat of knowledge for us? The brain, yeah. For the Jewish mindset, the seat of all knowledge is the heart. So I think that's why the scribe responds the way he does. Both of them are in agreement to say an uncompromised love, all of your life. So he understands that this is not a love that looks like kind of the modern pop Christian love, which is sometimes like this. I love the way that God makes me feel when I think about Him, but I also love the way that money makes me feel when I have it. You know, that's a compromised love. That's a hard one to get serious about. You cannot love God with your emotions, feeling wonderful about His great power to save you, while you also use all of your strength to satisfy yourself, because that feels good too. That's a compromised love. 
Maybe another way to say it is this. I love God with all of my heart and all of my mind on Sunday by thinking and feeling really good about Him and the Bible. And when I am active and exerting physical strength and effort during the week, I love not God or others, but only myself. So everything that I'm spending my effort and strength and time doing is to advance me and mine. That's a compromising love. These are the pictures of trying to serve two different masters, and that the Bible teaches us is totally impossible. The Christian life, in the Christian life, uncompromised love is the goal. And then you might get hung up, as I did a little bit on, love your neighbor as yourself. And you say, man, I kind of hate myself. I look at myself and I see darkness and regret and sin. And the reason I watch TV and drink too much is because I don't want to have to deal with who I am. I don't like myself. And then we think, how am I supposed to love other people? I don't even like myself. And I would say that thought right there is a major revelation to us. You can learn something really important about yourself if that's the thought you've had, which is similar to the thought that I had. It's a dysfunctional view of love. You've probably come to believe that love is primarily about how you feel towards something. And perhaps it's even out of your control, kind of like our modern, uh, you know, like, I fell in love, you know. I don't know how it happened. I just, like, falling into a, a pit in the ground. Like, oh, I'm in love. I don't know. We think about love as beyond our control and purely emotional. Hence, if I don't feel a love toward myself, then there's no way I could love my neighbor. But this isn't the picture of love that God paints for us in the Bible. And I think the way to fix this is the Shema or as the Jesus Creed suggests, is to actually hear, O Israel, hear, O God's people. Hear what he says. We need to hear God on the subject of love more than we hear Hollywood, okay? We have to hear what he says about love. You drank water this morning because you love yourself. You want to stay alive. You took a shower this morning because you love yourself. You made scrambled eggs with Swiss cheese and garden tomatoes with some chives on top because you love yourself. You want to survive. When you fail at something in life, you also chastise yourself, don't you? You say, man, I really dropped the ball on that. I need to learn my lesson. I need to pick it up. I want to become more mature. Loving yourself is that kind of thing. You're caring for your body. You're caring for your life. You're keeping yourself alive. You're thinking about how to grow and advance. So if you're loving your neighbor in those kinds of ways, think of what kind of person you become. It's not just a person who has warm fuzzies about everybody all the time. It's an active, tangible, visceral sort of love. When God says this is love that Christ laid down his life for us, he's showing a tangible picture of love. One of a human being with such a rugged commitment to others that he gives himself for us. He gives himself to care for our lives. 
Jesus has set us free from the slavery of self-obsession. Because of him, we are now free to live the truly good life, which is the life of love for God and for others. Rather than staying isolated and protecting ourselves from pain and awkwardness and inconvenience, and aren't those the golden gods of our day? Those are. I mean, the opposites of those are our gods. <laughs> so pleasure, convenience, and always feeling great. Yeah? It, it, no awkwardness. We think, we've been taught that if there's ever pain in your life or awkwardness in your life or inconvenience in your life, by golly, then it's bad. Somebody's to blame. We've got to correct it. And yet Jesus says, yeah, this, this whole life is going to be about bearing a cross, which is painful and very awkward, certainly inconvenient, you see? If we believe Jesus, we understand life will come with those things, and rather than getting our heads constantly obsessed with fixing all that, instead we focus on what God tells us to. Rather than staying isolated and trying to protect ourselves from those things, we make a rugged commitment, just as Jesus did, to be with people, to be for people, and to always be steering them toward the kingdom of God, the reality, the truth. We love with truth that is rooted deeply in the reality of God's kingdom. So our, our lead elder, Bob Rapp, he loves to say this. It's fantastic. He says, love without truth is not love at all. Just like truth without love is not truth at all. That, I think, is a good description of the New Testament's vision of real love. So with all that I am, all that I have, my heart and soul and strength and mind, everything, I have an uncompromised love. I live by this love with everyone on my path of life, my spouse or maybe my girlfriend or boyfriend, my kids, my coworkers, my classmates, my fellow motorists on I-84 at rush hour, DMV workers, telemarketers, criminals, police, protesters, victims, oppressors, the wealthy, the poor, all. God loves us while we're still sinful. When I was doing some of my master's work, I studied a man named St. Maximus the Confessor. The dude is awesome. He's kind of complex. I have to read him like 18 times before I know what he's saying. But sometimes he gets real clear, and here's a clear statement from St. Maximus. This is probably in, I don't know, 500-something A.D. He says, you have not yet acquired perfect love if your regard for people is still swayed by their character. For example, if for some particular reason I love one person but I hate another. Or if for the same reason I sometimes love one person and sometimes hate that person. Oh, man. There I start to see a picture of love that I'm far more familiar with. No wonder I foist that vision of love up onto my impression of God. Yeah? That is not the way God loves us. My teacher in the, in the school that I'm in now, he has this great little quip. 
I want you to remember this. Take this home with you today. Love has arms that reach out always. It's a great way to think about what we're saying. Love has arms that reach out always. They say, okay, all right, Pastor Ben, this this is sounding good. Love is more than an emotion. It's more than warm fuzzies in my heart about whatever. I get that. Jesus is showing us the central core of the Christian faith, but what does that look like for real? Okay? I could, I could go on until next November thinking about this, so I'll give you a couple examples, but I want you to think about this and talk about this amongst one another. Think about getting groceries, for example, okay? Getting groceries. Now, in the average world, according to the average core governing principles of life in this world, What's your goal? You're the parent. You have to go. Well, and let's say you have children as well. Hypothetically, let's pretend. So you're a parent with children and you have to get groceries. The goal is to get food for the family. And it's going to be tough. There's a lot of things that are going to try to slow that down. But the best way, the best possible scenario is I can go out and get the groceries that I need for a fair or discounted price and get home efficiently and get on to other things. So I enter into the task of grocery getting with those goals in mind. So when we're halfway to the grocery store and my five-year-old needs to go potty, what do I feel? Okay, fine, fine. I told you before we left, but whatever. So you help him do that. And then you go to the grocery store and you've got the person in front of you who thinks that this is like like a time for a tour. So they're just kind of... You know, and you're trying to wave around them, and you're like, good grief, what is going on here? And then the prices are not what you were hoping for, and you lost your, if you're like me, you left your shopping list that you worked like an hour on, it's back on the kitchen counter. So you're upset about that, now it's going to take more time, you're going to forget stuff. Now the kids are, I want gumballs, and you're like, no, we're not getting gumballs, quit asking me, I've told you a thousand, you see where this goes. Then you get your groceries and you get them home and you get them put away and it's been stressful and difficult and the one thing you think is, oh my goodness, I have got to find somebody to watch the children the next time I go do that. They're just a pain. This is so average. Now, what if in the morning you woke up and you sat down and earnestly for the 10 seconds it takes, focused your heart. You said, God, this is what my professor does every single day. He reads that Jesus creed, he recites it, he prays it deeply. And he says it grounds me in what matters most for that day. And it helps my decision making throughout the day. And you start your day by saying, I'm going to love God and I'm going to love others with every part of my being. Now, going to get groceries is my chance to show young people what it looks like when a follower of Christ steps in to the chaos of a broken world where everybody's trying to get theirs and fight and get ahead and be convenient and avoid pain. Everybody's doing that. And instead, I enter in with shalom and peacefulness. My kids get to watch how I behave when somebody cuts me off or when the checker is rude to me or somebody's walking slow. They get to watch what happens when I lost my keys. Do I freak out and panic and yell and scream, or do I enter into it with a trust and a love for God? I see grocery getting as an opportunity to spiritually form my children and to bless every human being that I will engage with on that trip. What about your job? Your average outlook is, 
I don't want pain, I don't want awkwardness, and I don't want inconvenience. Add on, but I need money, so I have to work. And I will put up with this crap that I have to. It's a necessary evil, and that filters into every conversation you have with your colleagues, with your bosses, with everything. And you generally get into the very normalized mindset of, I work for the weekend, and if only I didn't have to do this stupid stuff. What if you started your day and you said, today is another gift from God. He's giving me a heartbeat. He's giving me breath and life. And today, I get to live for Him with an uncompromised love. Now, every engagement that I have is an opportunity for me, like if I was a football player, I'd go to practice and I'd learn how to pass a football well or tackle people well. As a Christian, I go into my workplace and I say, this is a place for me to practice forgiveness. I'll tell you what, you were not born a forgiving person. Just like Aaron Rodgers wasn't born as awesome as he is now. He had to practice that, okay? Christians have an opportunity every day to practice forgiveness and grace and love, your whole outlook on life changes and you can feel already, can't you? The way that Jesus' truth is, is a yoke that's light. It sets us free. Church, this is the last one. The average outlook that we have, even within modern Christendom, is that church is a place to have a weekly experience that helps me transcend the difficulties of the day. It helps to pull me out of my spot for a couple of hours and make me feel good. So I go to a physical location, which is the place where I can meet Jesus, and it's the place where I can get fed by other people and receive all it is that I perceive that I need. This is why I go. I go to consume. I can shop for the spiritual goods and services that I've deemed most important to me. Because I don't see my neighbor as God does, and instead I see God as one who recognizes our sin first, then that's what I notice about other people the most. I have a heightened awareness of my own sin, so I enter church worship tenuously, often reserved, and I have a heightened awareness of other people's sin, and so I pay attention to them because I believe in that gospel of sin management. Why didn't they do what they were supposed to do, is what I thought. That's what I focus on. Why didn't they provide what I wanted, is what I focus on. Who missed the mark? Who dropped the ball? Who needs to get right with Jesus? That's how I think. I don't focus on how to love or forgive. I focus on what I don't like and what's wrong. That's a terrible way to live within Jesus' body, and it probably makes you think, that Jesus' body is bad. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, wait a minute. Well, I guess we are sinful people. Thank goodness God loves us while we are yet sinful. But when the creed of Jesus sets your course in life each day, you don't belong to the church because you have to make things right between you and God. You belong to the church because you believe in Jesus. You believe that He has already finished the hard, hard work of making you right with God. He's done that work. It is finished, he says. And so you go to church for one reason alone, to love God and to love the people in your midst. You see a weekly gathering through the eternal eyes of strong love. It's a place where you are free to step out of self-focus and into that excellent truth 
Love has arms that reach out always. Your heart transforms. The first thing you see when you see misbehaving children is not, geez, what are the parents doing about that? Instead, you remember, ah, I remember what it was like to have little kids. This mom and dad need help. They need grace. They need love. Your heart is open toward them. Your arms are open toward them. Instead, you say, these little miracles of God, which are running around all over, and I might trip over them too, I literally have an opportunity to serve them and love them, and I want to minister Jesus' love into their life by giving them attention, by being present with them, by being part of our ministry to kids. Do you understand how vibrant that ministry could be if we would all get this in our heads about loving others instead of seeing, and this were what the people of Jesus' day saw. They saw children as a problem for what the good stuff in life was. And Jesus changes our heart and he says, no, the good stuff is giving. When you're harmed, rather than whining or loathing your pain, you take it to God. You do the same thing Jesus did and you take it to the Father, the one you love, the one who is the Lord your God. You have an uncompromised love for him and then you forgive. You forgive and you love those who have harmed you. I want to close this morning with that creed and then we'll be done. Can I get a bulletin insert? Allie, do you have one? Let's read this together to close this morning, okay? You can sit right where you're at. I would very much encourage you to begin the practice of sitting each morning before you set out into the world, grounding your heart and soul in these words of our Savior so that they can inform the way you live through the day. Are you ready? Let's read this together out loud. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Thank you.